Hey, this is Brandon Mackey, staff writer for Silver7Sends.com and host of Internal Budget Podcast. You're listening to the Third Line Plug Sendscast. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jancy. Tim, how's it going, sir? It's been going really good. Uh, the weather was pretty rough for the first half of, of the week in Canada Day. We had uh, on and off torrential downpour. But uh, the rest of the week was beautiful, and uh, I actually got out to see some buds on Friday night. They just moved into a new place, so uh, we went and did housewarming stuff. And this may sound like a weird thing for to be for a highlight, a week highlight, but uh, I finally went to got to go to the gym. Yeah, how'd you do in that? Uh, it was good. Uh, it was just the gym or building. It was actually pretty empty. Just one older dude on treadmill. Uh, they had every other machine kind of taped off. Mm-hmm. I got on the treadmill. Sorry, not the treadmill. I got on the exercise bike and. My old resting was is now my peak, so I'll have to work back at it, but that's the way she goes, right? Exactly. I know even for myself, because we have a treadmill here at home, because like, I haven't been able to go to the gym since March, so really that's the only form of exercise I've been able to get. Yeah, I was doing uh, sweating to the oldies, so... <laughs> that's not too bad. It's not too bad, but it's not what I usually do on the bike, because I usually rest at like, like my regular pace is uh, like resistance seven or eight mm-hmm. and then uh i do intervals on the bike so i'll go up to about 14 or 15 and what? i think that's like a out of a 20 point scale wow holy shit well i know for myself when i go to the gym like i'll be on the treadmill for half an hour i'll do a run and walk for probably 10 walk on an incline for 10 and then walk straight at a reasonable pace for 10 and then i'll cool down on the bike so it's not too bad I've never liked treadmills, to be honest. You know what? I've tried treadmills. I've tried ellipticals. I've tried the Stepmasters. And honestly, I think I prefer the f- treadmill myself. But, you know, that it's a personal preference, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always been partial to the bike. So, Tim, I'm very excited to get together to do today's episode because today's episode, we are doing another redraft episode. And the draft that we're going to be redrafting today is the 2003 NHL draft. So before we go into talking about the history, the draft order, all the good stuff we need to talk about, let's quickly talk about the 2003 NHL draft because I think for a generation, especially for people our age, this is the one that I think that we were kind of old enough to really form an opinion on these players, but also this is where we really saw the next generation of stars really coming into their own. Yeah, there's a lot of players that we kind of watched over the entire arc of their career and some of them are starting to retire now or, for, but a lot of these players are still around. Like your Ryan gets laughs, your brain, brain Coburgs, Thomas Vanek just retired. Dion Phaneuf. Dion Phaneuf. Uh, Marc-Andre Fleury is still going. Yeah. Eric Stahl's still going. Brent Burns as well. Yeah. And we also can't forget that Joel Pavelski's also going too. Yeah. It's amazing to think that 
these guys were 18, 15 years, sorry, 17 years ago. I know. And that's really weird because when I was looking back on it, I was like, wow, like I really can't believe that's already 17 years ago. Because I remember when, like I remember hearing about guys like the Marc-Andre Fleury's through the World Juniors, and then all of a sudden they start getting drafted, they start playing in the NHL, and as you were saying, we watched their whole arc of their career as it unfolded. Remember the NHL, sorry, those NHL ads where they're running through the, the where they're running through the hotel. I think, I think uh, Eric Stahl's in one of those, and that's like his third or fourth year in the. That's only like his second year in the league. Yeah, I think the one that he was in was the Eric Stahl. Eric and Jordan were there. Ovechkin was in there. Crosby was in there. Yeah. Phil Kessel was in there. Uh, God, who was the who was the Sen in that? I'm trying to think in that. Was it Mazaros? I don't think it was Mazaros. No. Uh, or was it Heater? No, Heater no. was in that. It was a it was a young gun. Oh, who would have been? It wouldn't have been Spezza. No, it wouldn't have. It was it was a young gun that it was kind of like a Brandon Boshensky or something. It was one of those kind of guys. Oh, uh, okay. So, Tim, given that we just talked a little bit about the draft, let's get right into this. Let's start with our redraft, the 2003 NHL draft. Now, before we go into this, we got to talk a little bit about the history of this draft. This draft was held June 21st, 2003 at the Gaylord Entertainment Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Yes, that was the name of the arena. Don't snicker. Hey, he sold a lot of newspapers. This draft was noted as only being the third time in NHL history a goaltender was drafted first overall with Marc-Andre Fleury going to the Pittsburgh Penguins with the number one pick. This draft is also noted as being ranked as one of the most talented draft classes of all time, with even some analysts suggesting that this was even better than the 1979 draft. Every pick in the first round went on to play at least one regular season game with Hugh Jessamin and Sean Bell playing the least with two and 20 games respectively. One thing about this draft, though, Tim, is that the later drafts also feature more than a couple of players who went on to have a substantial career, such as Shea Weber, Corey Crawford, Jimmy Howard, Chobavelsky, and Dustin Bufflin. And given not that, to mention Clark MacArthur. And I was going to get to that because because we're a Sens podcast, a number of ex-Ottawa Senators were also drafted in this year, including Clark MacArthur, like you mentioned, Mark Mathod, Nate Thompson, and the man that almost became Mr. Irrelevant, Ryan Elliott. Oh, wow. And even some other former sends along the way, like Corey Locke and Alexandra Picard. Who, honestly, through this show, we begin to learn that we remember them more from the EA games than for their actual career. Yeah, and there's there's a ton of players in this draft that played at least five hard games. Like, even, like, Nate Thompson's in here, Kyle Brodziak. Just a lot of talented players, Tobias Edstrom. So a lot of, not just, like, a lot of star power, there's just a lot of Players who had long, good careers. It's true. And even guys who were really, didn't really have the biggest of careers on the ice, but off the ice, they were willing, they were able to build a second career, most notably Paul Bizonette. Yeah. Or even, even Dan Carcillo was also this draft. Oh, that's right. I totally forgot. Okay, so I just. Sorry, Tim. Just I quickly had a look on Wikipedia to find out who that player was. It was Patrick Eves. That's the young guy I was thinking of that was in that commercial. Right. <laughs> Patrick Eves is such. That's an interesting career. The man is insanely talented. 
I don't, and he's still going too. I, I, I think he just retired or something, didn't he? Or is he still with Anaheim? I remember him being a big part of Dallas, the Dallas team, not last year, but the year before, I think. But yeah, that's just one of those players where I wish he could have been healthy over his career because that would have been a very good career if he could. That's true, and I mean, you could. There's also a number of sends that you could look at. I think you can even. You can even make the argument for, you know, what would, well, I guess Clark MacArthur is probably not a great example, but if you had, say, somebody like a Martin Havlat, because Havlat was was injured once in a while throughout his career, too, in Ottawa. Yeah, because, like, I don't, like, uh, Patrick Eves never played an 82 game season. Yeah, but you got to realize how tough that is to play a full 82 game season, though, then. But a lot of the times it was, like, 60 games here, 40 games here, 30 games here. Like, the dude was just always injured. Tim, one thing about these redraft episodes is that when we actually do, when we apply the draft lottery to it, usually the drafts that we're talking about, like the 1984, 1991, or 1993 draft classes, there is no draft lottery attached to this. We're entering some new ground today because this is the first NHL draft that we're going to be covering that actually did have an NHL draft class, or sorry, an Thanks. NHL draft lottery attached. Thanks, Audible. Yeah. Oh, well, what can you do, right? Yeah, exactly. So instead of redraft lotterying the, what was drafted for the 2003 NHL draft, we decided that we're going to do the draft lottery as determined by the final 2002-2003 standings. Now we're going to go from 10 to 1, and this was, this was the final draft, or the final NHL standings at the end of that season. So at number 10 is Montreal, number 9, Calgary, number 8, Atlanta, number 7, Nashville, 6, San Jose, 5, Buffalo, 4, Florida, 3, Columbus, 2, Pittsburgh, and number 1, Carolina. So, just like with the other redraft episodes, we've decided to apply our lottery to it. Now, how we're going to do it is that we randomize the numbers. From, we started from 10 to 6. Whatever last number came up out of that, we added it to 1 to 5, and we randomize that to get the final draft order. So, without further ado, Tim, our draft order for the 2003 redraft goes as such. Drafting 10th overall, dropping four slots, the San Jose Sharks. Drafting 9th overall, moving up one slot, the Montreal Canadiens. Drafting 8th overall, dropping one spot, the Nashville Predators. Drafting 7th overall, moving up two slots, the Calgary Flames. Drafting 6th overall, dropping three spots, the Columbus Blue Jackets. Drafting 5th, dropping one spot, the Florida Panthers. Dropping two spots, going number four, is the Pittsburgh Penguins. The big shocker right here, Tim, dropping two spots, going number three, the Carolina Hurricanes, and with the first pick in the 2003 NHL redraft, moving up seven slots, the Atlanta Thrashers. Which means the Buffalo Sabres move up three slots from five to number two. So Atlanta gets to another kick at the can to fix up the Patrick Stefan debacle. Oh, abso absolutely, Tim. And with that being said, Tim, with the first pick 
in the 2003 NHL entry draft, the Atlanta Thrashers would have taken Marc-Andre Fleury. However, with the 2003 redraft, the Atlanta Thrashers take Eric Stahl. Now, before this is we... a no-brainer for them. It is. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about the later picks for Atlanta because, honestly, they had no picks in the second and third round. And this is the one thing I learned doing this episode where I was like, wow, Atlanta really had really next to no draft picks in this. Yeah. But Which I, is surprising for a team that had, like, a new team and a bit of a cellar dweller. It is true. It is true. But you know what? I feel that I can't remember what pick they used. They traded it to Calgary in the 0203 season and got a very young Mark Savard. Which is honestly fair. Yeah, it was actually a very, very good pickup, too. So we're going to talk a little bit about the later picks we would have redrafted. Now, in the fourth round, I know you're going to disagree with this. I would have taken Paul Bizonette over Jim Sorrow with the 110th pick. In the fifth round, I would have taken Lee Stepniak over Brett Sterling at pick 145. With the In the seventh round, I would have taken Joe Pavelski over Denny Logano at pick 203. And in the ninth round, I would have taken Yaroslav Halak over Rylan Kip at pick 269. You know, I'm not going to lie. Joe Pavelski is, that is a hard pick to make. Like, 69 points at 60 games at 18 in the USHL is pretty good. And actually, I'm not going to lie, I'm not really sure what Atlanta saw in Loganov. I don't know what they saw, but you got to understand is that, and because, again, there was no information on him I, from what I was seeing on when I was looking through the Wikipedia page, but there was a lot on Joe Pavelski because he ended up turning out to be a star. So let's talk a little bit about Eric Stahl. Now, as you said off the top, I think this is an absolute home run for the Atlanta Thrashers. Eric Stahl would get Atlanta their franchise number one center to play alongside their two star snipers like Ely Kovacek and Danny Healy. Now, of course... In saying that, this is obviously without the power of hindsight as to what would occur a couple of months later after the draft. The one thing about Eric Stahl is that looking at the roster, I don't think he would have immediately became their number one center as that role was filled by Mark Savard at the time, who was putting up great numbers for the Thrashers. I could see him being maybe a number two center until Savard's departure in 2006. Now, one thing I actually, and I wanted to talk to you about this, because when I was thinking about this, and I... Kind of sort of remember Mark Savard as an Atlanta Thrasher. Do you think there's the possibility if, say, Atlanta had made the playoffs in 2004 or 2006, Mark Savard would have re-signed in Atlanta? It is tough to say. I don't think I was paying enough attention to the the sports media at that time, but I think uh, if the Atlanta team was a bit deeper, they might have stuck around. I'd have to look back to see what the the cap considerations were because uh, that would have been a capped season. So maybe they'd let him go to keep Eric Stahl. That's a good point. Unless they could have say sweet or talk, sweet talks, Mark's Mark Savard into saying, Hey, listen, like we've got, we're building a much deeper, deeper team. If you want to be a part of this, maybe take a pay cut. But I don't see him doing that because he would later go on to the Boston Bruins and he actually signed a pretty, team-friendly contract. I think he was only getting paid 16 over 4 or something? 20 over 4? It wasn't that high in all things considered. No, it wasn't high at all. 
But here's the thing. Even without Mark Savard, I think later on Atlanta would get their solid number two center when they draft Brian Little in 2006. Yeah, Brian Little is definitely one of those underrated players. But, like, the hard thing is just that Atlanta team never got the success that it really needed, you know? It's true, and with Mark Savard being drafted first overall, I think that that could have really changed the fortunes of the Atlanta Thrashers because, say, the 05-06 season, because on paper they really didn't have that bad of a team up front. The only thing that they were really lacking was some bottom six help and maybe a really, really good second-line center because if you were to look at the 05, and we're talking about the 0506 Thrashers here, is that if you look at that team, it went Savard, who the hell was that center? I think Stefan was still there, and there was another center. And it, honestly, and then they later added, you know, Keith DeChuck, and they brought these guys. Oh, in. they had Bobby Holick. Bobby Holick. Okay, so that's, it was like, yeah, Savard, Holick, and Stefan. So it was a pretty decent one. But I, I don't know. I mean, I could maybe see them still bringing in a Holick. And maybe saying, okay, you know what? The Patrick Steffen thing didn't work out for us. It's time to move on. Yeah. And it's funny because the 0506 Thrashers were two points away from the playoffs. So I think, like, subbing in Eric Stahl probably gets them over the top. I think so. I think the only thing for Atlanta at that time is that they didn't have a very good defense. And that really hurt them, especially in that one playoff series against the Rangers where the Rangers just completely dominated them. That is true. Actually, you know what's funny? Talking about those Thrasher teams, you know, and I didn't realize that Andy Sutton played on a lot of those teams. Yeah, and I think, if I remember correctly, was uh, was he part of... No, he. I think he just free agent went to the Islanders. I think so. I think that's what happened to him. Yeah. Although, uh, one of the things that definitely didn't help the Thrashers was Hosa leaving and then the departure of Ilya Kovalchuk. That is true. That is true. And But you know what? And I honestly, you could make the an argument here that, say, even if Mark Savard had left and Eric Stahl stuck around, there's a possibility that maybe Marion Hosa would have stuck around too, but... Again, if you look at that 07-08 Thrasher team, it wasn't really all that great outside of that first line. And that's one of the one thing that the Thrashers, from what I remember, that they really struggled with is that they were really a one-line team. They had Kovachuk on one side, they either had Heatley or Hosa on the other, and they had whoever at center. That's really all they had there. And yes, they brought in some really good veterans. Like, they brought in... You know, the Todd Whites, they brought in a Bobby Hill League. They brought in guys to try and shore up that team, but nothing was just going for them. No. And even their sec, like, there's such a big drop off from uh, Hosa, from Hosa Kovachuk and Eric Pernin in that year to Mark Recchi, Bearslav Kozlov, and Bobby Hill League. Now, before we talk about the later picks' careers, and, you know, one thing talking about the Thrashers is that I was watching a video probably a couple of months ago here talking about the Thrashers, and they were talking about when the Atlanta Spirit, I think that was the ownership team at the time that bought the Thrashers, the real reason they actually ended up owning the Thrashers is because they wanted the Atlanta Hawks at the, at the NBA. And 
the ownership told them, he says, well, listen, you can't buy one without buying the other. And that was the one thing I think a lot of Thrasher fans looking back is that their ownership group in Atlanta with the Thrashers was such a, it was a really poorly run, but I really don't think they were ever really given a fair chance to succeed in Atlanta. And that's where the NHL just eventually pulled the plug because of that ownership group. Yeah, well, it's it's clear that if all they really wanted was was the Hawks, then they didn't give two shits about the hockey team. No, and that was really disappointing because if you were to go back and look at the attendance of the Thrashers up until maybe the last two seasons, they were bringing a very, very good numbers for a team that was not very good on the ice. And, you know, I think a lot of people do kind of definitely dump on uh, fans for Atlanta sports in general. But, you know, in this case, those fans got shit on by the ownership. Oh, they totally did. But the thing is, and I'll talk about Atlanta sports, is that it's Atlanta sports is not... Their, their fan bases are not different than any other teams. I mean, they could look at a very good one, and I think the one that a lot of people don't want to admit to is Pittsburgh. Because think about it. When the Steelers were not good, when the Penguins were not good, when the Pirates were not good, people in that city could have given a shit about that team. Any of them. When they're not good, they're not showing up. <clears throat> look at the Penguins, especially in 2003. Nobody was going to those games. Look at the Pirates. Montreal's the same way. Yeah, look at the Pirates now. Nobody's going to their games. Steelers, Did anyone ever go to Pirates games? Well, yeah, at one time. Like, they were good for, like, a couple of seasons here a few years ago. Okay. Well, baseball's so weird with that, and your window is so small. It is true, unless you're... The Yankees or the Sox. Yeah, or even, to a lesser extent, the St. Louis Cardinals, where they just use the powers of black magic and are just able to get blood from a stone. Well, they also have money. Not Lots a, of money. Well, not as much as the Yankees and Red Sox well, do. That's fair. They're kind of like a tier below them. Like they really have to rely on their scouting department and developing players. Mm-hmm. Actually, Houston Astros always seem to hang around as well. And I don't think it's just because of cheating. The cheating that every team does. That's true. Look at the Patriots. Yeah. So, Tim, let's talk about the later picks for the Thrashers. And, you know, we were talking about Atlanta and the problems that they had in the bottom six. And the team overall was not very good. I actually think these picks would have really helped out. I think Lee Stepniak would have developed into a solid pro. Nothing overly special, but he would have been a very solid bottom six player. I think Yaroslav Halak actually would have developed into a really great backup and then possibly given a really good shot as a starter once guys like Andre Pavlik and Kari Lettinen really didn't seem to take off in Atlanta. I think Joe Pavelski could have developed into a... Well, he definitely would have developed into a heart and soul guy and possibly a number two center behind Stahl, maybe even a third center if, say, a Mark Savard had developed or even later on when a Brian Little came along. Yeah, and just looking at what Atlanta pulled out of this draft and even the draft before it and the draft after, you can't draft like that and expect things to happen. In 2002, they at least got uh, Jim Slater and Patrick 
Dwyer to play more than 300 games. This draft, the only other person they got was Tobias Enstrom. But you're seeing a lot of blanks in a lot of these other drafts. That is true. And I think at that time, the only other team of the younger Southern, I guess they were really a Southern team. Well, look at Columbus. How many times did Columbus whiff on those pl- on those players to get them? Other than a Rick Nash, a Mark Mathot, to a certain extent, a Pascal Leclerc. Yeah, it's honestly amazing. Like, I think, and I don't think I'm exaggerating here with saying that uh, Atlanta's scouting department is only a step better than Edmonton's scouting over the past decade. Because they sometimes hit in the later, they have hit once or twice in a later round. That but is like there's not a lot here. No, and honestly, the thing with Edmonton is that they always have those first overall picks, but it's the pick thirty-one that was a complete black hole. Like, like who was taken there? I think Tyler Pitlick was taken with one of those picks, I believe. Maybe a couple others. I can't even name those players. Yeah. Well, for Carolina, it's like Jim Slater. Luke Sellers, like these players that they, they don't amount to much, and you gotta hit with your second rounders. Like and like Andre Pavlik is the closest thing that they got to a successful second round pick. Yeah. Uh, the only other player that we need to talk about is Biz Nasty himself, Paul Bizanet. Look, he he really wouldn't have developed into much in Atlanta. He would have been what he was in Pittsburgh and in Arizona. He would have been that fourth line enforcer. And I actually believe like it. You know how, well, I guess you, I know you don't listen to Spit and Jackass, but I know that one thing that Bizanet always does is that he's always repping the Coyotes. I think if he had been drafted by Atlanta, then it would just replace Coyotes with Thrashers on him when he has a social media career. Because we've talked, we don't need to go into this, but you know, he's such a, he has that real kind of likability about him. And I know that's really weird to say, but he kind of has that kind of charm. He seems like be somebody that a lot of people end up liking on the podcast. So I think he would have actually translated into a very good career and maybe made the ATLs popular. Maybe, yeah. Hey, he could have been very good friends with my boy, Little John. (laughs) Fair enough. With the second pick, the Buffalo Sabres in the 2003 NHL draft would have taken Eric Stahl. However, in the 2003 redraft, the Buffalo Sabres take... Nathan Horton. Now, let's talk a little bit about the later picks. And, there, <clears throat> excuse me, there wasn't really much to go off for Buffalo. I would say in the sixth round, you could have taken a Bruno Gervais over Pavel Foroshinson with the 172nd pick. But I think in the eighth round, this is where Buffalo hits big. With the 235th pick, they would take Dustin Bufflin over goaltender Jeff Weber. So let's talk a little bit about Nathan Horton. Honestly, I think he would be a perfect fit for Buffalo, a versatile power forward who can score and play physical, which will be key when going up against the bigger teams like Boston or guys like Chris Neal in Ottawa. I'm not seeing a franchise player here, but I am seeing a very, very good top six player. And one thing that a lot of people might be surprised is that Nathan Horton's coming into a really decent situation here in Buffalo because he's not going to a team where it's just him. He's coming into a situation where he has talent around him, like Chris Drury, like Daniel Briere, like Maxim Venegunov, and he has a very young Jason Pominville. And while the first couple of seasons, I can see him being more of a cog in Buffalo, but 
once the guys like the Drury's and the Briers end up hitting free agency, that's when Buffalo gives him the reins and says, okay, you're now our number one guy. Well, what's funny is I think that uh, Nathan Horton is probably just a straight upgrade on Thomas Vanek and probably follows a pretty similar career. Like, he does what Thomas Vanek did in Buffalo, but better. Very true, and I think that's kind of tough to say because Vanek did put up better numbers than Nathan Horton did. Horton was more of a points-wise, probably 60, 65 points guy overall, but he was very consistent up until he got injured in the 2020 finals. Although the other thing is, like, when Thomas Vanek is putting up 84 points in 2006-2007, that is with Ifinaganov in his prime, uh, a strong Chris Drury, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing is, and actually I was talking to one of my coworkers who's a Sabres fan, he was telling me that Vanek really was a second, third liner in Buffalo. He wasn't a number one guy in Buffalo. Like he was, That's true, yeah. Because really, I think he was telling me at times, they had Daniel Breer as their third line center. I Like yeah. my head just hurts trying to comprehend that. Well, just think of how stupid, like that 2006-2007 uh, team, like, yeah, Derek Roy, Danny Breer, and, and then Johan Hecht and uh, Paul Gostad to round it out. It's like, that was a powerful team. Yeah, and it was a team that I, well, and obviously Buffalo fans will look back on that very fondly today, but I think when coming into that season, I really don't recall what the expectations for the Sabres were. I think because in 05-06, nobody picked them to be a playoff team. They expected them to, and even some publications said that they were going to get the first pick. And then Buffalo goes on that crazy playoff run, which, you know, they knocked us off, but that's not the point. It's okay. It's just fine. It's fine, you know. <laughs> Alfredson redeemed himself a year later. It's true. It's true. Yeah. It's all good. Talking about the later picks, and really this is where I didn't have much to go off because I do see Bruno Gervais being – a third-pairing right-shot defenseman for a couple of seasons. I don't think he would have made much of an impact with the Sabres, but, you know, they could probably use him as, you know, a sixth or seventh defenseman. Dustin Bufflin, this is the one that I really want to talk about because I think for Buffalo, he would have been a huge fan favorite, especially in that old Northeast division where, you know, you had the Daniel Charas, you had guys like Chris Neal, you had later on when Dion Phaneuf arrived, you had these guys that just made life a pain in the ass for other teams. And Buffalo, I think, would have developed into a monster on the blue line like he did. And then once it, once guys like a Tyler Myers or some of these other right-shot defensemen start coming into the Sabres, maybe Buffalo can transition them up into being a forward. Yeah, well, maybe they just don't go in on Tyler Myers at all. Because Tyler Myers, is he's always one of those players that looks... You look at him, it's like, okay, this guy has a lot of pedigree. He's big. But then he doesn't really do anything. Which is funny to say, because if you go back and look at his first couple of seasons in Buffalo, he put up really good numbers. And it looked like, wow, Buffalo has this really, not so much a franchise defenseman like Erasmus Dolan today, but they saw him being a very, very talented Defenseman. And I brought up his stats here. Like, his first season, 82 games, 11 goals, 48 points. Has 10 goals the next season. Drops about 9 or so points. 
And then it just completely drops off. Like, he's like 23, 8, 22, 13. And then he goes to Winnipeg. He's like 15, 27, 5, 36, 31. So it's like that rookie season was kind of the high watermark, and you hate to see it. Now, I know, before we go on to our third pick, I know that there's some people listening to this that think, well, why wouldn't Buffalo maybe, instead of going for Nathan Horton, go after a Marc-Andre Fleury, given that really they didn't have anybody as their starter in 0203, and I, and I will say this, two words, Tim, Ryan Miller. Yeah, did they pick up the year before? Ryan Miller, keep in mind, was in their system. He was ready to make the NHL. Like, if you go back and look at his, I think he was with the Rochester Americans. He put up fantastic numbers for the, for the Rochester Americans in the, in the AHL. He played for Buffalo that season, played 15 games, and put up a 902. And put up a .920 with the Rochester Americans that, that same with the games he played in Rochester. Like, they knew what they had with Ryan Miller, and it was good. For sure, and that's the one thing, and we'll go, when we go through this, is that really when I was looking at the picks, I was saying, okay, this team doesn't need a goaltender because they drafted one the year before. This team has so many in the system. This person, they used a top three pick, or in Atlanta's case, a number two pick the year previous on Kerry Latina. So really, they didn't have a need for Marc-Andre Fleury. No, not at all. In retrospect, Atlanta would have hit big with a Marc-Andre Fleury. I think... Other teams would have hit it big with Flurry, but you got to look at it at that time. Well, they thought Kerry Lettinen was their guy. Yeah, and he put up decent numbers for Atlanta, but overall, his game just disintegrated after a while. Yeah, then Andre Pavlik never developed. With the third pick, Tim, in the 2003 NHL entry draft, the Carolina Hurricanes would have selected Nathan Horton. But with the 2003 redraft, the Carolina Hurricanes select Thomas Vanek. So before we go into that, let's talk about the later picks. In the second round, I, I could actually see Patrice Bergeron being taken over Danny Richman with a 31st pick. And I actually really debated on this one in the fourth round whether the Hurricanes should really trade down to take Kyle Quincy. You know, I think it's hard to discount Nikolai Zardev in the moment. Because this is a guy who at 18 is going at a half a point of game pace in the C- in the KHL. Like well, that's something hard to discount. It it is, but the thing for me is that the selection of Thomas Vanek at 3 may come as a surprise given as Zherdev was still on the board and he was a more highly ranked skater. However, for me, I think that Vanek's time playing in North America is a huge deciding factor as he dominated the USHL with 91 points in 53 games and then posted 63 points in his first college season with Minnesota. Another deciding factor for me is due to the fact that Carolina didn't really have room on the right wing, whereas on the left wing, the Hurricanes were pretty bare outside of Jeff O'Neill. Okay, so it, you're saying they draft for need. They do. And honestly, this is not... I think it, this is obviously a hindsight thing, is that Thomas Vanek would instantly give the Hurricanes a really good scoring winner following the departure of O'Neill, where he would rise through the depth chart, passing you know a Ray Whitney, a Corey Stillman, guys like that. But I don't know. I don't know how far Vanek would have taken the Hurricanes, given that 
they didn't have that number one center maybe up until Rod Brennan retires and Patrice Bergeron takes over. Yeah, yeah. Like that, it's definitely a hard, it's a hard thing to kind of adjudicate. If they are looking for a center and they do grab Eric Stahl, there's a chance that they just say, screw it and take Jeff Carter. There is that, there is that too, but the thing is... Because we're talking about, about a guy who was over a point of, over a point in the, oh, the, the, the over a point a game in the O in his eighteen uh, year old season. So we are talking about a guy who is good. That is true, but the thing for me is that if I was the Carolina Hurricanes, Jeff Carter would feel a really big need at center. But obviously, we don't have with this pick. We don't have the power of hindsight. But Jeff Carter wasn't ranked to be a very, very top skater. Yeah, well, he put up great numbers in the OHL, but he was seen more as a top 10 guy, not a top 3 guy. Fair enough. And so, talking about the later picks, I, we already talked about Patrice Bergeron. He would become Carolina's number 2 center behind Rod the Bod until he retires and Bergeron take his place. I don't know about Quincy. I think he probably would have been more of a depth guy more than anything in Carolina. But I don't know. In the fourth round, that was just really tough. And like I said, I really debated whether he would have been taken or not. Yeah, and like that's kind of the weird things. The weird thing about this draft is that, like Trudovsky, the guy they took in the fourth round, for defense, he it looks like they just got kind of a punch your face defenseman with a guy who took uh, two hundred twenty nine penalty minutes with the Regina St. Pat's. Yeah, but the thing is, Carolina, if they were really need, if they had a need for that, they could have taken a Paul Bizonette or a Shane O'Brien later in the draft. Or, yeah, or just not do that in the fourth round. With the fourth pick in the 2003 NHL entry draft, the Pittsburgh Penguins would have taken Nikolai Zhirdev. However, with the 2003 NHL redraft, the Pittsburgh Penguins select Marc-Andre Fleury. So, let's talk a little bit about the later picks. In the second round, I could see them taking Louis Erickson over Ryan Stone at 32. In the eighth round, they would probably take Shane O'Brien over Joe Jensen at 232. And in the ninth round, they would probably snag... And this is actually... I want to get your take on this. Brian Elliott over Matt Molson at 263. I don't think they use... They've already taken two goalies in this draft. I don't think they take another. And Matt Molson is honestly a good enough pick. True, but you know what? I think because, yes, I don't see them. They probably wouldn't take two goalies. I understand that. But really, the one thing that Pittsburgh always kind of had a problem with with Marc-Andre Fleury is that they really never had that long-term backup. They always brought in a guy like a Thomas Vanek, or they brought in a Matt Murray that ended up taking Fleury's job in Pittsburgh, and they're kind or of... Or Chad Johnson. Chad Johnson filled that role for a while. He did, and now Pittsburgh's doing the same with Matt Murray with, uh, how's his name, Tristan Jar- Jerry? Tristan Jerry, yeah. So, really, I don't think we really need to go into this pick. Pittsburgh got their guy that they wanted, as they were the only team in the top five that needed that franchise goalie. We already know his whole career, became the star in his second season, went on to win three Cups and star in five All-Star games for Pittsburgh. Not really much to go on about. The later picks we can actually talk about because Louis Erickson would probably be a really good top six guy for Pittsburgh. Shane O'Brien would probably be 
a bottom pairing defenseman, mostly a scrapper. But this is for me. This is why I was thinking about Brian Elliott over Matt Molson because he would develop into a fantastic backup for Flurry. And as I said, there was there would be no need to bring in a Volkun, a Matt Murray, a Chad Johnson, any of these guys because they already had their guy. But then player. again, like a serviceable backup is cheap to bring in. Like in the year that the first time they went to the finals in 07-08, they had Ty Conklin. Yeah, they had him. They had uh, Sebastian Garon, and I believe in the Danny Sauberin. <laughs> Danny Sauberin, but I also think they had uh, Jocelyn Thibault as well. Hmm. But like, that's the thing is, I don't think like Louis Erickson would have been an interesting pull in, but I don't think they are even that starved for forward talent because like those teams had yeah like Peter Sikora, Colby Armstrong, Yarko Rutu, Gary Roberts. So it's like and Ryan Malone. So it's like. These teams, oh, and Marion Hope, they pulled in Marion Hosa and Mark Recchi to kind of fill things out as well. So it's like these are teams that they weren't devoid of talent, let's put it that way. True, but do you feel that if they had went ahead and took Louis Erickson, that some of these guys that you mentioned wouldn't be a part of the, the Penguins because they already had that spot filled? I think they still go for Marion Hosa. It would be it would be a great it's it was obviously a great pickup for Pittsburgh and I know he didn't stick around but you know what can you say exactly with the fifth pick in the 2003 NHL entry draft the Florida Panthers would have taken Thomas Vanek but in the 2003 redraft the Florida Panthers select Nikolai Zherdev so let's talk about the later picks in the second round. Pittsburgh actually, or sorry, Pittsburgh, Florida hits big time in the second round because at picks 37 and 55, instead of going for Kamel Kreps and Stefan Mayer, Shea Weber and David Backus. And in the fifth round, instead of going for Martin Tuba at 162, they go for Mark Mathot. The fact that Shea Weber is even on the board at, <coughs> excuse me, at 38 is one of those things that's kind of impressive in hindsight and just there's a lot of other players that were better picks that even justifies it being on the board at that point. Like in the first round, you still have like, and late in the first round, you got like Ryan Kessler, Mike Richards, Brent Burns, and Ryan Getzlaff. And Corey Perry. And Corey Perry. Like that's just how nutso this draft is. Yeah. The only problem with the 2003 draft in retrospect, is that, yes, there were a number of players in the later rounds that had substantial careers, but there was a lot of those picks that were complete messes. Unless your name was Joe Pavelski or Brian Elliott or, hell, even Bizonette. Well, to be fair, that's that's the nature of the later rounds, right? Because you're going to miss. Like, it's more hits than misses because the obvious talent is off the board by the end of round one, usually. And in this in this draft, there was still obvious talent deep into round two. Because a lot of these round two draft picks play at least 100 games. Like even something like your Dan Freach and your Camille, the Camille Kreps pick here for Florida that Florida actually made, they still play at like 200 games in the NHL. They do. But the, the nice thing about doing these redraft episodes is that obviously with the first round, we don't have the power of hindsight. The later rounds we do. So obviously while Camille Kreps, as you said, did play a couple hundred games, He's not Shea Weber. No. Stefan Mayer is not David Backus. Martin Tuma is not Mark Mathlott. Yeah. Well, what's funny is a lot of these teams could just say 
like if we're playing power heights, a lot of coaches go for like a Patrice Bergeron or yeah, like Shea Weber, just because that that's someone who's on the table, and that's insane to me. So let's talk a little bit about the Jardas selection because it's not a huge surprise that he was taken given his overall ranking. I think the big surprise came from the fact that he was still there at number five. Now, Florida would see him as their franchise right winger to complement Ole Jokinen on the top line. The early returns are really good for Florida, as Zierdaf would put up 88 points in 130 games over his first two seasons. However, a really poor attitude and clashes with head coaches ended up messing up his NHL career. And there is a debate that could be made when you really think about Nikolai Zierdaf is that whether his poor attitude really stemmed from all his problems or the fact that every year it seemed like he had a new head coach. But I could always make the argument for the other side if he went to Florida. He wouldn't have a number of head coaches. He would have Mike Keenan. Keenan would have just buried him alive. You know, for his... Reputation as being a hard-nosed coach, I'm actually a little surprised that you haven't heard any abuse stories, like physical or racial abuse stories out of Mike Keenan. And you know what's funny, Tim, is that if for our listeners, if you were to go back and listen to those episodes that we talked about with the Bill Peters accusations, I think I even said on the show, I'm shocked that Mike Keenan never came out. And Torts is kind of different because the stuff with him and Sean Avery is already public knowledge at this point. But I totally agree. I'm actually really surprised that Mike Keenan doesn't have any of those. I know one or two accusations came out that really didn't become big stories. But as you were saying, right, given his reputation, I'm surprised that a lot more didn't come out about him. Yeah, and I think one thing is, is just in the case of Zaredev, he goes on to have a competent but not great KHL career that ended two years ago. So, like, I wonder if we just didn't see his ceiling. Because what's interesting is once he gets, like, his year with the Rangers, his 08-09 with the Rangers isn't actually that bad. We're seeing 58 points in 82, 82 games. Not bad production. It's not. And going back to with Carolina taking Thomas Vanek, for myself, as I said, the deciding factor for Vanek over him was that Vanek dominated here in North America. But... When I go look at Zierdas' time in Belarus and in Russia, he didn't dominate at all. Like, I'm looking at his numbers, and he, he played a handful of games. He either had no points or he had one goal. And that's something for a lot of North Americans. When you look at the KHL stats, is that they would honestly look at it and be like, well, how is it that this guy had, say, 30 points and everybody's raving about him, where if he had played North America, 30 points is nothing. It's because he's playing in a men's league, and he's playing for CSKA. True, but I mean, you know, even if you look at a lot of the, the big stars over in the KHL, like, they were really only putting up 40 points, maybe 50 points at that. Unless you're, yeah. like, Ilya Kovachuk that was just dominated from the second he showed up. That's true. Well, it's like even with CSKA, and I think that was a good... I couldn't tell you if that was a good CSKA team or not. Zaredev was the third top scorer on that team. And the top two were both at 27 points. Yeah, it's kind of like when you look at, say, the Swedish Elite League, 
when, you know, these top-ranked players are putting up, like, 17, 18 points, and us North, here in North America, we're looking at that, and be like, really? That, that's all he put up? But keep in mind, it's totally different game over there. There's not really... There's no fighting. The ice surface is bigger, so that probably played a big factor in it. Mm-hmm. And for context, that year, uh, the points leader of the Russian league was 46 points to Nikolai Zaradev's 24. For an 18-year-old, that is, that's impressive. So sticking with the leader picks, I obviously Shea Weber would be the franchise anchoring defenseman, most likely a future captain for the Panthers. Mark Mathot would be a solid third-pairing defenseman, possibly even a second-pairing given how weak the Panthers' defense was. But, hey, overall, I think that Florida actually comes out pretty decently overall in this. Yeah, and Florida's such a weird team. Just because there's, like, all these different ways of trying to combine players, and it just it never really seems to work out. No, which I think when you look at the team now with the the Barkos, the Ekblads, the Huberdos, you see that they're all homegrown talent, but they're getting great quality players versus just throwing shit at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, like remember what they had like the season of Booth? Oh yes, I remember the season of Booth. And Ollie Yoka did Jay Bowmeister. A.K.A. Florida good. With the sixth pick in the 2003 NHL entry draft, the Columbus Blue Jackets would have select Milan McCulloch. However, in the 2003 NHL redraft, the Columbus Blue Jackets select Neon Dion Phaneuf. So, talking about the later rounds, and I think the Blue Jackets also hit pretty big here because in the second round, they could have... Kept with Dan Fritzrick at pick number 46, or they could have taken Corey Crawford. Yeah. And actually, it's one of the other funny things about uh, the Blue Jackets in particular. They're another team that picked a bunch of goalies, and then, like, none of them really kind of worked out. Like, I think the closest they had was Pascal, out of all the goalies they took at that point, I think the closest they had was uh, Pascal LeClaire. Yeah, and this is where I I really, really debated whether to go for Corey Crawford over Dan Fitzgerald at 46 because Pascal LeClaire was the Blue Jackets' top pick just two drafts previous. Mm-hmm. So and Pascal LeClaire is another one of those guys that he didn't quite work out. That's true. I mean, God, his most noted thing was getting injured by a dodgeball. If the guy had a better constitution, maybe... I think he would have had a good career in Ottawa because, like, when he was able to play, he was definitely skillful. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, when you look at through the sends of those years, I mean, you had a number of guys that were like that, right? You had Pascal Leclerc, who was talented, but always got injured. You had Robin Leonard, who was talented, but struggled with his mental stuff. Brian Elliott was talented, just not overly consistent, and it was up until Craig Anderson shows up and just takes the range from everybody. That's true. The other thing is, is uh, Pascal LeClaire never played more than 40 games for the Senators in a season. Actually, he barely played 40 games for the Senators at all. He was a guy, like, I remember in those uh, 2009-2010 playoffs, I was actually pleasantly surprised with how well he was playing. 
That is true, and that's the one thing, even looking back, is that I think that was a year that Sens fans knew we were not going to go anywhere. I think we got into the playoffs. and On a wing and a prayer. Yeah, pretty much. And there was nothing really eye-popping about that team. They were just sort of there. And then the quadruple overtime game happened. I know. And then you're like, there's a chance. I know, and then that... And then that was only the second biggest moment from that playoffs, only behind Andy Sutton's now infamous post-game interview. Poor Jordan Leopold just got absolutely fucking destroyed. Oh, he totally did. So let's talk about the Fanuf pick here, because I think there's a real debate for the Blue Jackets who they would take at number six. Now, there's always the argument they could have taken Andre Konstitsin to give Rick Nash a talented line mate, but I actually decided... To go with Dion, given how weak the Blue Jackets were on defense, but also because it would give them somebody to build around on the back end to complement Rick Nash up front. And out of all the defense we taken in the first round, Dion was probably, I would say, the first one who was the most NHL ready. He dominated his first couple of seasons in the NHL, recording 159 points over his three seasons, but then his game completely de- disintegrated into him becoming a more stay-at-home defenseman, or to a certain extent, a pile-on. But I, I actually want to get your take on this, Tim. Like, where would you have gone with this? Would you have taken Constitsen to compliment Nash, or would you have gone with Dion Phaneuf? You know, the next best center on the board was Jet Carter. And I think Columbus is looking for a center here. Uh, if you're going defense, I think you have to go with Ryan Suter. Because both of them make it at the NHL at the same time. And the big thing is, like, Dion Phaneuf, his time in the Calgary is, is a lot better before Toronto wrecked him. And while Suter's career is pretty, it's stable, good, and something you can build around, even through his time in Minnesota. The only thing that's really wrong about Ryan Suter in Minnesota is the contract. That is true, but, I mean, there's always the argument that he at least has lived up to that. Well, not putting up, say, Eric Carlson numbers, but he's giving the Minnesota Wild what he was brought in for. Brought in for. But if you're looking for a talented winger, like a talented winger to go with Rick Nash, I think you go with Milan McCulloch. You could have gone with Milan McCulloch, but I think that I, I don't know if the Blue Jackets would have gone for another left winger. Now, given that I know but that... But then the, you're... Oh, yeah. That, but, that's true. That's but true. But given I understand the Sharks did use McCulloch as a right winger, so there's obviously that. But I think for myself, why I didn't go with Jeff Carter at number six as well is because, for me, when you look at the people on the board, Jeff Carter was not ranked higher than them. And I think these guys were ha- ranked higher than Carter. But I think with the power of hindsight... I think Jeff Carter would have gone to Columbus wherever he would have gone. That's fair. Although, didn't Jeff Carter have a bit of a spell in Columbus eventually, if I remember correctly? He did, and then he got traded to Los Angeles. That brought them... Who the hell did they trade to L.A. for? Uh, but yeah, it's just... Fuck. I want to say Jack Johnson, but I might be wrong on that. Yeah, that's how Jack Johnson got there. Something like that. Honestly, though, I think that 
in the short term, FNAF would have made sense for Columbus because when you look at the division they were playing, he was going up against the powerhouses like the Red Wings. And could you imagine what a pain in the ass he would have been to say Johan Franzen in Columbus? For sure. Although I still think this Columbus team, with the scouting that they do and the really poor drafting job they've done, I think they're still not quite there, even if they do the draft this 2002 draft perfectly. So let's talk a little bit about the later pick that they had in Corey Crawford. He would develop over the next several seasons before making the Blue Jackets, then taking over starting duties from Steve Mason. I'm actually very fascinated about Corey Crawford's selection by the Blue Jackets because I often wonder where Chicago would have gone in that second round because, honestly, the only other goalie they could have taken that was of Corey Crawford's level was Jimmy Howard at 52. And if they're drafting a goalie in the second round, they'd probably go right for Jimmy Howard. Mm -hmm. I think that Corey Crawford is the better of the two goalies. Oh, I'm not even going to deny that. I think Chicago really made a really good one with that, but they also made a really good one with the guy, Brent Seabrook too, in that draft. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Seabrook pickup was as much as Seabrook is negative value. Now at 14, I think Brent Seabrook was the right pick. It's hard because Brent Burns is still on the table. It is true, but you've got to understand that in 2003, Brent Burns was not a defenseman. He was a forward. Oh, you're right. So, yeah, in retrospect, he they could have gone for a Brent Burns, or, hell, they could have even traded up and tried to get Ryan Suter. Because Ryan, yeah. Ryan Suter would have been perfect in Chicago because his uncle Gary Suter was once a Blackhawk as well. But at the same time, the Seabrook pick is... It's still a good pick at 14. Absolutely. With a seventh pick in the 2003 NHL entry draft, the Calgary Flames would have selected Ryan Suter. However, with the seventh pick in the 2003 redraft, the Calgary Flames select Milan McCulloch. Now, like Columbus, Calgary also has a dilemma on their hand with this pick. Ryan Suter and Braden Colburn are still on the board, but they would ultimately decide on Milan McCulloch, given that Calgary's left-hand defense situation at the time was already in place. Pretty much. And what's interesting with the Flames is like they weren't doing too hot in the last few seasons, but their drafting had picked up by this point. Like Eric Nystrom and Matthew Lombardi actually playing quite a few games. Chuck Kobasu and David Moss from the 2001 entry draft, and Jarrett Stoll and Travis Moen being deep pickups in the 2000 draft. Yeah, and we also can't forget that they also made the pickups of Mark Savard and Chris Drury as well. Yeah, so it's that like the Calgary team was doing quite well. This draft, outside of Neon Dion, was a bit of a miss for them, though. It was. It was, but I think because Dion. Like I said, with when we're talking about FNAF, like when he came to Calgary, though, there was so much hype about him because he was a Western kid. And then he comes in and he just dominates. Like, I remember watching him in Calgary and thinking, holy crap, like this guy's just dominating everybody. And he was what? Yeah. 
20 years old, if that. And he was a full-grown man at that point. Mm-hmm. And the Calgary fans got to watch him up close and personal because he played two more seasons in Red Deer, so they could drive up the road to see him. That is true. And actually, I was thinking about this. I actually kind of forgot he played for Red Deer. I thought he had played for the uh, the Hitmen. Nope. Red Deer Rebels. Yeah. Actually, it was that's why uh, some random guy saw it in an anime convention. I was like, yeah, D- I'm from Red Deer. Yeah, I was kind of a dick. <laughs> so overall, I think this Milan McCulloch pickup for the Flames actually does work out. It gives them a talented big body scan- scorer on the left side with Jerome McGinley being on the right side. Would be a consistent 20 to 25 goal guy in the future. The only problem with him, and I often wonder what his career would have turned out had he had the injury bug not hit him so early. That's true, Ed. but one thing that is nice about Malama Kalik is he does get bit by the injury bug, but he gets to play most of the games in most seasons. He does. Up until about 20, up until the most recent knockout, really. And Malama Kalik, he was a, like, probably one of the more underrated senators in 2011-2012. He popped 60 points in 77 games. Yeah. With and 35 goals. Well, at the time of his recording, he's the last senator to score 30 goals as well. And he did it in 2011-2012. Yeah, 2012. yeah and, uh, he might have been... Milan McCulloch might have slotted right away into that Calgary Flames Stanley Cup run team. I actually kind of debate that because... And I'm going to quickly look up his stats because I think... I th- he played two games with San Jose, scored a goal in 2003-2004. Oh, did he? Okay, I thought he was still in college at that time. But... No, he was playing... He played three years in the Czech Leagues. And then came right over to North America. Uh, played seven games in the Cleveland Barons, 2003-04. Oh, okay. Yeah, know. and then uh, he goes on, like, his first full season with San Jose is 35 points, and then it just goes up from there. The, yeah, that's a good that's a good point, but I, when looking so back I, at that team, I honestly wonder whether he would have made that team, given that the Flames later brought in Chris Simon for Jamie McLennan, they brought in Martin Jelena, they were bringing in these more veteran guys, to shore up their bottom six. So That's uh, true. Honestly, I don't know if Milan McCulloch would have made the team that year. 05 no. 06 for sure, but definitely not for their playoff run. Mm-hmm. But I think he would be a good fixture in Calgary for a while. You know, do you think Dion Phaneuf would have avoided Pylon um, if he stayed in Calgary? That's a very, very good question because I think when you look back at his later days with the Flames you could already see him developing into that guy because for whatever reason, I don't know if it was because of his injury or his skills just completely disintegrated, but one thing I noticed in his last year was that he really lacked foot speed. And guys would just constantly just try and get around him. Like, that's one thing when you're, you know, a young guy and you can skate hard and you can actually keep up. But when you're that age and you don't have the foot speed as a first pair defenseman, you've got big problems unless you have somebody on the right side who can catch him. Yeah. Which worked out in Ottawa for a season. It did, but you know what? Like Fanoff, anywhere he went, I think there was always the criticism always was because of his contract for sure, but also because of how he played. Cause if you looked at his time with the Leafs, he didn't put up overly terrible numbers. When he played in Ottawa, he didn't put up overly terrible numbers. It was always the $7 million per 
is what always hung over him. Yeah. And then we managed to dump him on L.A. However, they ended up giving us Marion Gabrick, so... Hey, at least he counts in favor of the cap. With the eighth pick in the 2003 NHL entry draft, the Nashville Predators would have selected Braden Coburn. However, in the 2003 redraft, the Nashville Predators select Ryan Suter. Nashville, like Pittsburgh with Flurry, gets their man in Ryan Suter as the Predators had him ranked higher than Coburn and Phaneuf. And I don't, like, as we're talking about Mark Andre Fleury, I don't think we really need to go into Ryan Suter with the Predators. He was a really, really good defenseman for the National Predators. He developed into the quarterback on the power play. Didn't have the most physical of games around, like his Uncle Gary, but was a good player nonetheless for Nashville to build around. He probably would have likely played his entire career as a Predator as Nashville would have had cap space to re-sign him in 2012 instead of signing with Minnesota because Shea Weber would not have become a national predator. He'd be a member of the Florida Panthers. That's kind of a big deal. That if Weber doesn't end up in Nashville as well, well, I think that kind of alters the way we see David, we see Poyle as a general manager because that, that Weber... Sorry, that Shea Weber suitor pairing was kind of the start of Nashville's almost permanent presence in uh, the postseason. That is true, and if you recall, that David Poyle almost lost Suter and Shea Weber, as you recall, because remember uh, Philadelphia gave him that fifteen-year contract that got. I, I can't remember if it got rejected. It was offer sheeted. Yeah, yeah, offer sheeted, but it got rejected by the NHL, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I can't remember if it was rejected by the NHL or Nashville didn't have to match it. I don't think. I I can't recall how that all went up, but that's a big one for David Poyle. And honestly, can you imagine if they had lost Shea Weber and Ryan Suter at the same time? That would have been an embarrassment. I think the only way that's probably more embarrassing is the... Oh, no, they matched the offer sheet. Oh, solid. Yeah, the yeah only, it was 14 years. Oh, geez. The only way that would have been more embarrassing is if you were the 07 Buffalo Sabres that lost Daniel Breer, Chris Drury, and if you recall, they almost lost Thomas Vanek to the Oilers, too. The Oilers were offersheeting everyone that year. I know. Because that's how they end up with Dustin Penner. That's how they ended up with Shea, or Sheldon Surrey. How did Kevin Lowe get in the Hall of Fame again? I don't fucking know. Ah, that's so bad. He was—he wasn't even the best defenseman on that team. He wasn't even the most deserving guy on that team. If you want, like, if you're the NHL and you want him to duck a guy who is more deserving, why didn't you put Andy Moog in the Hall of Fame? Hell, put Andy Sutton. People remember him fondly. That's true. Andy Sutton probably had a better offensive total than him. Actually, yeah. actually, you know who didn't have a better uh, total than him? Ron Hainsey. <laughs> actually, speaking of Ron Hainsey, Tim, with the ninth pick in the 2003 NHL entry draft, the Montreal Canadiens would have selected Braden Coburn. But in the 2003 redraft, the Montreal Canadiens select Andre Konstitsin. They get their guy. Now, this is actually very fascinating. Montreal could have gone a few ways with this pick. 
because there were three guys on the board who could have been a big pickup for them. Andre Konstitsin, Braden Colburn, and Jeff Carter. Colburn, I think, would be the least likely given Montreal's left-handed shot. Defensing pairing were already set at the time when you had the Andre Markos, the Sheldon Surreys, and yes, even the Mike Commissarics of the world. But And also, you can't forget that a very young Ron Hainsey was on that team too. Carter, in retrospect, would have been a big hit for Montreal. The Habs would have had their number one center, which means they wouldn't have the need to go out and get a Scott Gomez or even flirt with the idea of drafting Anze Kopitar in 2005. I'd see Montreal wouldn't go with it, given that they had young guys like Chris Higgins and Mike Ribeiro coming up. And Conceitson was seen to have the higher ceiling. He was seen as a higher ceiling player. As I said, he didn't really do much in the Russian Super League during his brief tenure there. But I think that he actually fills a big need for Montreal as a talented right winger to complement Saku Koivu. And he gives Mike Michael Ryder help on the right wing. And the one thing about Sergei Konstitsin, or sorry, Andre Konstitsin, is that I think his career was actually kind of fascinating in Montreal because he was actually productive. He had four 20-goal seasons. He had a career-high 53 in 07-08. But I just remember the Montreal fans didn't love him wholeheartedly. And I think of him the kind of the same way that Alex Kovalev was in Montreal. And it's weird because Kovalev was the Habs' best player for the years that he was there. And yet, he always had kind of a weird relationship with the fans in Montreal. It's funny because I always feel that even though Andre Kostitsin was arguably the better of the two, I think Sergei Kostitsin got most of the media heat because there was higher expectations for Sergei for some reason. Yeah, oh yeah, I guess that is true. Which is weird, because he was only drafted, what, 200th overall in 2005? Yeah, like, I, I don't get it. But yeah, the Constitsin brothers were really weird, because... I don't know, there was just something about those guys that the Montreal fans didn't love. And I think because, as with Alex Kovalev, is that Montreal has always had a bit of a weird relationship with Russian players on their team. I don't know if maybe I'm the only one that sees that, but I think that over time, like the Konstitsins, they really had a weird relationship with. Kovalev, they had a weird relationship with. The only one they didn't was Andrei Markov. And even with Markov, it took a while. Because, like, there were a lot... For a while, there was a lot of uh, Montreal fans that weren't on board with Markov. Yeah, but overall, I think Montreal fans are like that in general, given that, hell, you could look at so many players in their, even their recent history, they were never behind right away. Carey Price, they were not behind right away. You know, as you said, Andre Markov, they weren't behind right away. The Constitsons, they weren't behind right away. Kovalev, they weren't right behind right away. But also, if the big thing for me, they were also not behind them. They, the expectations were so much higher if you were super talented or you're a French-Canadian. They have driven so many French-Canadians out of town. Well, think about it. You know, you think of the, you know, Max and Lapierre's. They ran out, hit him out the door. They ran out Patrick, well, I guess Patrick left on his own, but uh, fuck, who's that other um, 
French-Canadian guy. Uh, Ribeiro, they ran him out of town. Well, Latontres injured his way out of town. That's true. And then he became a third-line blood cover athlete. Yeah. Who got the better end of that stick, though, Tim? Yeah, no kidding. But yeah, it's like Montreal. It's just, it's a weird place to play. And I think, but I, I imagine in any sports league where you have a lot of, like, the expectations are going to be super high for anyone if it's a team with, a, like, a long-storied history. So, like, your Manchester United's, your New York Yankees, that sort of stuff. That is true. Well, even the Toronto Maple Leafs, too, right? Eh, the pension plan doesn't care that much. Well, the fans do. God, I mean, you think of that. Like, how many, Like, it took Matt Sundin at least a year or two for them to really accept him after Wendell Clark got traded. Yeah, that's fair. There's still people. Actually, I remember as late as 2010, there were people who still had Wendell Clark as their phone wallpapers. Yeah, I know. It's hard to believe, man. He's still the most popular leaf around. Yeah, good marketing on his part, I guess. Very much so. And now we come to the 10th pick in the 2003 NHL entry draft. The San Jose Sharks would have taken Andre Konstitsin. In the 2003 NHL redraft, however, the San Jose Sharks select Jeff Carter. Now, San Jose, like many teams that we've mentioned, they had a real debate on their hands. Do they go with the big body left-hand shot defenseman and Braden Colburn? Or do they go with Jeff Carter to give them a great number two center behind Patrick Marlowe? And I actually think that picking Jeff Carter actually made quite a bit of sense, given that the Sharks didn't need another left-handed defenseman as they already had... Scott Hannon, Christian Erhoff, and they later acquired Brian Campbell a few years later, Carter would have stepped into that role as a second-line center like he did with the LA Kings behind Patrick Marlowe, and then when Joe Thornton gets traded to San Jose a couple years later when Carter was a rookie. And here's another debate I actually wanted to ask you. Because when they brought in Joe Thornton, Patrick Marlowe got moved to the wing. They never really, I don't think they ever had that great number two center. Do you think if Jeff Carter was their number two center during the time that those guys were there, would the San Jose Sharks have a Stanley Cup ring today? No. Because the weakness of those San Jose Sharks teams was always Evgeny Nabokov couldn't win four games in seven. Like, the weakness was in the crease. But do you feel that if Jeff Carter was there, they could have gotten to maybe more than the one Stanley Cup Finals that they did overall? I think so, but I'm not sure that you can win. Like, I love Evgeny Nabokov is a very good goaltender, but Evgeny Nabokov has a really bad habit of anti-clutch. I think they probably get a bit further just because they have that extra center. Although, San Jose was always kind of blessed with a strong pipe down the center especially once you get like Joe Pavelski and sorry Joe Pavelski right wing but you do get a lot of quality centers like even down even depth centers like Marcel Gawk you had Thornton Mar like Thornton Marlowe even Marlowe moving to the win so it's like I don't like Jeff Carter helps a lot but I don't think he pushes them over the top yeah even Chris Tierney for a while in San Jose was a decent centerman for them yeah and, like, Joe Pavelski did fit in as center number two. Yeah, and that's where... I think that's another reason why I picked with Carter at number 10, because Pavelski wouldn't have been there for San Jose to pick him up. 
Yeah, that's fair, that's fair. Like, I think the Sharks, they probably have a bit more firepower. Like, I think they probably beat, with Jeff Carter, they probably beat the, they probably beat the Stars in 08. Although that Stars team was re like, the Marty Turco-Mike Smith tandem is a good goaltending tandem. And uh, Mike Ribeiro, Mike Madonna as your one-two punch is hard to beat. And Brad Richards. And Brad Richards as your number three. That is a Jeff Halpern rounding it out. Yeah, and we, also, and we also can't forget that uh, Brendan Morrow also came up huge for Dallas in that playoff run. That Yeah, that's that's fair, too. And then Louis Erickson, UC Okunen, and Yuri Lettinen, that's a very strong four. And Brendan Morrow, like, that's a very strong forward core. I think Jeff, Car- Jeff Carter on the Sharks takes, like, it's a six-game series. I think they, that at least pushes that series to seven. Well, Tim, that wraps up the top 10 for our 2003 redraft episode. Now, like we've done with the other ones, we got to have a look at the other noted first round picks past number 10. And we're going to start from the guy. There's a lot of them. We just started off talking about the guy drafted one spot below to the Philadelphia Flyers is Jeff Carter. Two time All Star, two time Stanley Cup champion, 2014, 2012, 2014 with the LA Kings, gold medal winner in 2014 and a World Junior Gold in 2005. Dustin Brown comes in at 13. He's won two Stanley Cups with the LA Kings, and he's kind of been one of their heart and soul players in that organization. It's kind of crazy to think that he only has 600 points, though. It's true, but he was never known to be an offensive guy. He was more to be a power forward. Mm -hmm. But, like, 50, 60 points a season? Other, like, not bad. He does have that weird dip for about four years which does put a lot of stress on the LA Kings. And I think because of that, he probably doesn't end up in the hall of fame despite two Stanley cups at number 14, going to the Chicago Blackhawks, Brent Seabrook, a three times Stanley cup champion in 2010, 2013 and 2015. Yeah. Just an overall solid, uh, stay at home defenseman who earlier in his career could also pitch in on the offensive side. And he was a key I think he was definitely a key part of that. Their first Stanley Cup win between him, Bufflin, and Duncan Keith on the back end. But uh, in the twenty four in twenty fourteen, he manages to pot fifteen points in in sixteen games for sorry in twenty three games for Chicago, which is nothing to sniff at either. No, absolutely not. Going to the New Jersey Devils at number seventeen, Zach Parise. Now he was a star sniper for the Devils for a number of years, potting a career high ninety six points. And he was also a part of the 2012 New Jersey Devils Stanley Cup Finals team. Prezi's career, it's one of those guys where you wonder what would have happened if he stayed in New Jersey. You know what? I think when you look at the Devils at that time, I really don't think Parise would have stayed with New Jersey given how high of a cap hit Ilya Kovachuk was on that team. Because, you know, Parise was going to get his money regardless. For I just, sure. I just often wonder... Would have New Jersey, or could they have re-signed him in 2012? I don't think they could have. Especially because he got one of the biggest contracts ever. Going to the Anaheim Mighty Ducks at pick number 19, Ryan Getzlaff, a three-time All-Star, 2007 Stanley Cup champion. Yeah, it should have been ours. A two-time Olympic gold medal winner, and a gold and civil medal winner at the World Junior Hockey Championships. Brian Getzlaff is a future Hall of Famer. 
Oh, he's got 100%. the cups, he's got the medals, and uh, next season he'll have the thousand points. It's when rather than if. Massive pain in the ass to play against, though. Well, not as much as the guy at pick number 28, but we'll get there. <laughs> going number tr- going to the Minnesota Wild with the 20th pick, Brent Burns, a six-time All-Star, Norris Trophy winner in 2017, a silver medal winner at the World Junior Championships in 2004, and he was a part of the 2016 World Cup of Hockey team that won it all. Does he have any Olympic medals? No, he wasn't a part of any of those Olympic teams, if I'm not mistaken. That's kind of amazing to think about, considering that he's probably, between him and Eric Carlson, they are the premier offensive defenseman of the league. Well, you've got to understand that Brent, well, keep in mind, the last time the NHLers went was 2014. Team Canada already had a number of guys going to the, the Olympics that year. Like Drew Doughty. Like Drew Doughty, like Duncan Keith, like Brent Seabrook. I'm just having a look here. Uh, no, he wasn't a part of the 2014 team at all. That's just mind-boggling because in 20, that 2014 season, yeah, that was 40, 48 points in 69 games. Next season, 60 points in 82, 75, 76, 67, 83. Like, that's insane production. Yeah. Well, there's talks right now that the NHLers will be going back to the Olympics in 2022, and maybe Brent Burns would be a part of that team. Yeah, because, like... Although, although I, I will say right now, because Brent Burns' production from here until 2020, or 2022, I should say, there's a pretty big chance it could take a huge dip in a younger guy like say, an Aaron Ekblad or a Thomas Shabbat or somebody would take that and make Team Canada. Oh, for sure. Like, at 35, he's on the wrong side of the aging curve. I was just surprised that he never made it to a Team Canada given just how elite of a player he was. And even some of his, like, his best season was at age 34. Like, which is mind-boggling. Yeah, but Mark Giordano won his first Norris Trophy at, what, 36? Yeah, like, it's amazing what, like, some players just age so gracefully. Yeah, you could look at Nick Lidstrom. To a certain extent, you could say it's a Daniel Chara, but it's true. Not everybody ages that well after 31. Yeah, it's a shame that Eric Carlson, with his injury pass, probably won't either. Going to the Vancouver Canucks with a 23rd pick is Ryan Kessler, a two-time All-Star, Selkie Trophy winner in 2011, and Olympic silver medal winner in 2010 to go along with his gold medal at the World Juniors in 2004. Ryan Kessler is just one of those players that I think like the name of Ryan Kessler it carries a lot of weight despite the guy being a massive asshole on the ice. It does. It does because I think when you really look and you you and I had this argument even on our last episode talking about the Sedins, because when I look back in those 2009, 2010, especially 2011 Canuck teams, Ryan Kessler is one of those guys that I immediately think of because I will go to my grave saying that second round in 2011 against Nashville, Ryan Kessler is the reason they won that series because he and Luongo threw the team on their backs and led them to the finals. And it wasn't up until the finals. That's where Ryan Kessler's game completely disintegrated due to injuries. But at the same time, it's like, damn, Sedin had 104 points that season. 
that at that yeah, playoffs that's true. he had 20, 20 points, including nine goals. Yeah, that's like, that's fair. That's fair. But the thing is about the twenty eleven playoffs is that if you look at Ryan Kessler after that, he was never the same player. No. Going to the Philadelphia Flyers at pick number twenty four, Mike Richards, Memorial Cup champion two thousand three with the Kitchener Rangers a one-time All-Star, and a World Junior Championship gold medal in 2005 to go along with his Olympic gold in 2010. And his Stanley Cup with L.A. That's right. I totally forgot he won a cup in 2012 with L.A. And if it wasn't for the cocaine, he'd be an All-Star. Yeah, cocaine's a hell of a drug, man. Yeah, well, like, look at these numbers, like... Like, Philadelphia, it's like 70 po- 75 points, 80 points, 60 points, 66 points, gets to L.A., it falls, it falls off the cliff, and all of a sudden, uh, yeah, he's doing a bunch of cocaine, and his contract's been cut. Although that Philly team was also known to be for being a bit on the hard party side. Oh, yes. Yes, it was. Rounding out the m- noted first-round picks, going to the Anaheim Mighty Ducks at pick number 28, Corey Perry, a four-time All-Star, Rocket Richard Trophy, and Hart Trophy winner in 2011, Stanley Cup champion in 2007. And this is actually very, very huge to note. He won the Memorial Cup in 2005 with the London Knights, which I believe that season they only lost eight times. That entire season. That's fucking insane. That was the year, that was the Crosby year too. That was the year where Ramuski was going up against London in the Memorial Cup. And, and London, Corey Perry has 130 freaking points. Yeah, London in 0405, they had him, they had uh, who the hell was the house on that team? Robbie Shrimp. They had a number of guys who just came up huge for London, but also had really great careers. And I'm going to just quickly bring up this 0405 London Knights team because I honestly think this is a great opportunity to talk about one of the best junior lineups in history. Yeah, we're going to quickly bring this up here. Okay, so, as you said, Corey Perry, 130 points. Robert Sh- Robbie Shramp had 90. Dave Bolin had 85. Dan Fristrick had 35. Brandon Pruss was on that team. Mark Mathot was on that team. Daniel Girardi was on that team. Who else was on that team? I guess that's really all of note, to be honest with you. But it's just like, this team just ran roughshod. And it's interesting, like Dylan, Sh- like Rob Shrimp was a guy that just never really kind of he put it together a bit, but never fully did. Yeah, actually, sticking with Corey Perry and Ryan Getzlaff, you know, because we talk about the two thousand seven Stanley Cup Finals and the fact that they won it. You got to realize the main reason both those guys ended up in Anaheim is because of Brian Murray. Yep, the man had an eye for talent. That's true, and yet, you know, Pierre Dorian had to convince him to draft Eric Carlson in 2008. Yeah, which is, it's a little surprising, but that's actually one thing I do greatly appreciate about Pierre Dorian is, I think he's probably underrated as a scout. He is, and, you know, for the criticism that we give him as GM of the Sens, that his eye for talent as a scout really did come in handy when the Sens acquired... The Josh Norris's, the um, Aaron Branstrom's, guys like that who later are now in their system are going to be making the big club here in the next year or two. Mm-hmm. 
but even like that 2000, like the 2008 and 2009 drafts, the Senators haul at least like in 2009, in both drafts, they haul at least five players who play more than a hundred games. Do you know how insane that is? Yes. And they weren't just like scrub guys. They were guys that made an impact on our team. That's when you saw, you know, Mike Hoffman, Marks. Well, I guess Mark Stone was more later on. But, uh, yeah, you definitely had those kind of guys. Well, Borvietsky was drafted in those years. Yeah, like Borvietsky, Patrick Weirkosh, Eric Carlson, Zach Smith, Robin Lehner, Jacob Silverberg, Mike Hoffman. Like, that's two years that you could compete five players who have big NHL careers. That's insanity. And then the Devon to 2011 draft with Mika Zibanejad. Like, they draft a, a top center and Pajot. Yep. And yep. then a bunch of other... And Ryan Dezingle in the final round. Well, in 2010, they got Mark Stone as well. Yeah, like, the dra- the quality of the drafting is really good. Oh. And even, like, their miss year, tw- well, 2012 was a wash. Yeah. Like, that was a bad year. And 20, 2014, they traded all the picks away, so what are you going to do? But, like, there's a lot of good drafting that the Senators have done. I totally think so. So, Tim, I guess that wraps up our episode today on the 2003 NHL redraft. Now, do you have any comments you want to make before we head off into the close for another episode? Um, not really, although, uh, for folks who, I'm sure people who are listening to this podcast have already seen it. Uh, seeing this go up uh, at the time of the recording uh, the NHL and NHLPA have announced that uh, they have come to terms with what the protocol will be when they're playing games in their hub cities so give that a check out yeah just go onto our Twitter at third line plug we also quote tweeted a recent TV appearance from Silver 7 Sens writer and former guest on the podcast Brandon Mackey yeah it was a good interview was pretty good well guys thank you so much for listening to the third line plug sensecast i hope you've enjoyed it because believe me tim and i love recording it for you we're on the national podcast network you can find our page on nationalpodcast.network where you can find our links to itunes soundcloud and google play you can find us on twitter at third line plug is our twitter handle tim is at m901 honey badger and i'm at great white gipster gr8 w-i-t-e gipster if you want to choose an email to give your thoughts on today's episode for the 2003 NHL redraft, shoot us an email, thirdlegplugsensecast at gmail.com. Until next time, guys, I am your host, Taylor Gibson. And this has been Tim Jensen. Go Sands, guys. Woo!